thanks very much, Bruce, and thanks uh, to Rick and the Mershon Center folks for having me out. And I, uh, I was originally very confused about why I would be uh, invited to talk at an international security center because I'm an economist and I'm talking about social stuff and group, group uh, dynamics. Um, but actually, uh, I had an interesting talk with Rick this morning, and it harkened back to uh, some thoughts that I'd had early on in my uh, sort of intellectual uh, career, thinking about the, the importance of being able to get along with others and being able to share with others in terms of um, creating a healthy society and, and whether or not people form into groups in a way that we would consider to be socially optimal or whether they form into groups that could potentially be considered um, a, a negative equilibrium or create a society which was at a, at a lesser uh, level than we'd like. And so I kind of come at my work um, from a more interdisciplinary perspective than some economists. My mom was a psychologist, is a psychologist, and I have a lot of uh, interest in sociology and social psychology generally. So I'm, I'm interested very much in how people choose uh, their situations their social situations, and then, because I'm an economist, in what those kinds of choices do to their ultimate outcomes, and to what extent those outcomes are explicable by what's, what's uh, true about the person at the start versus what happens to them in the intervening social context before they, the outcome is, is uh, observed. So the talk that I'm doing today is uh, sort of in that very much in that vein, we're being very interdisciplinary and uh, very simple. The paper is very, very simple econometrically. Um, and it really just has kind of one idea, uh, which I think is uh, appealing to, to hopefully a, a broad group of uh, social scientists. So the motivating phenomenon that I have for this talk and for doing this paper in the first place was, first of all, I don't know whether this is as much the case in the States, although I, I have a sense that it is. Certainly in Australia, there's been an increasing use in tertiary education over the last 10 or 15 years of uh, group work in assessment. So you assign students to groups, or you say, please form your own groups, and then you assess them based on their group work. So you must work together and then either submit a paper as, as a joint piece of work, or you work together and then submit individual pieces of work. And that's for, for the, you know, partially for the convenience of the assessor, but then also partially we would presume to teach students something about uh, how to work in teams. But from my reading of the literature anyway, there's a bit of lack of clarity about exactly what it is that we are teaching students, exactly why we use this group work. And obviously there's this rationale that you could give that is somewhat, uh, oh, shall we say, not very flattering, which is that if you have people work in groups, then you have less grading to do. <laughs> and so clearly if you don't have as much money from the Commonwealth government, which is certainly the case in the Australian tertiary education system, um, they've, they've suffered greatly from a by about 30% reduction in funding over the last 10 years. Uh, you're looking for any way that you can cut costs. And so this is an easy way. At the same time, what you often hear is not anything about that, but rather about how, oh, yes, we're doing students a good service by teaching them how to work in groups. Um, what I hear as an educator from uh, you know, my experience doing courses where there is a lot of group work is students come to me and they say, oh, I can't get along with my group members because they are free riding or they're social loafing or they're control freaks or they're perfectionistic or they don't know anything or they can't speak English to me, all these different problems. And they ask me to come, you know, to please solve these problems for them. And, and it ends up embroiling me in much more of that kind of social stuff, social dynamic stuff, and I really want to be embroiled in. And I am not a person who can teach people how to get along with others. I mean, I get along as well as I can, but I don't do a great job. I'm certainly not trained in it, right? I mean, I'm trained in economics, and so it kind of distracts me somewhat from the main focus of what I'm trying to get across to students in terms of the content, to have to babysit students in their whole group dynamic sagas. 
And so, and, and I certainly don't see that they're learning a whole lot other than that group work is a big bother. And that's what I feel myself. It's just a big bother, you know? You've got to deal with these people who you just you don't really want to be working with them. You don't really know anybody anyway. Um, you know, and how, how, do you, how do you do this? So, so there's this kind of lack of clarity about what we're really teaching students. And when you do hear arguments about what supposedly we're trying to do, they don't really match up, at least from, from me, with my anecdotal experience of, of, of students and their complaints. But at the same time, I think we, you know, would do well to understand, and I think this has been shown in, uh, in many other pieces of work that have been done in social effects in education by sociologists, psychologists, and economists, that what happens in those groups is potentially very important to the economic outcomes that result, the educational outcomes that result. So if you have group work that's happening, or even just students learning in classrooms, even if it isn't about group work, what happens there does have some impact on what goes on later on for these students, whether they get better grades or whether they choose their different majors or whatnot. And there are some papers uh, you know, that, that exa address exactly those kinds of issues and find that there are some, some interesting dynamics. But, but really, what can we actually observe about groups in terms of you know, group level outcomes or outcomes that have to do specifically with study groups. We've measured grades before. We've predicted those grades. and We've predicted major choices or choices of uh, fraternity joining and things like that. Ruth Sassard has, has a paper on that. And we've measured you know, a whole bunch of other kinds of you know, um, illicit behavior and how much you're influenced to smoke or drink or get pregnant based on whether other people around you are doing those things. But in terms of you know, your attitudes towards groups or the productivity that you are uh, able to then bring to a future group, it's a little bit harder. So how do I measure whether you're good at working in groups? If I think the reason I'm putting you into this group, or the reason I'm, I'm using group work assessment in my course is because I want you to learn group skills, how do I measure those group skills at the end of it? Think about what, what do you use, what skills do you bring to the table when you're in a group environment? Well, you have to communicate. You have to be able to listen. You have to be, be able to say your point of view. You have to be able to politically manage multiple different personalities. You have to be able to understand the other person's perspective and, and see how you might be able to compromise with them and what they want. There's a whole slew of really, really complicated skills, right? And how do we measure that stuff, the learning of that kind of thing from these group work experiences that students may be having in the classroom? So I just, I just thought of that as just too hard. So that I'm not, I can't measure that. I'm not a, a group work kind of um, guru myself, but I know a little bit about psychology. And there are existing uh, instruments, survey instruments, that people have used in the past, particularly in psychology, to measure people's attitudes towards a variety of things, including their attitudes towards working in groups or being social. Right? And so what I did in this paper basically was to try to focus on something that we can actually measure that the students may be getting out of their group work experience, which is their attitudes towards working in groups. So that's the primary outcome measure that I'm, that I'm thinking about. I also have some regressions that predict examination performance, but the primary one is this measurable uh, sort of outcome of groups, which is attitudes. Oh, yes, Bruce, and please take questions. I definitely want to have questions during my talk. Yeah. Yep. And some people are in the groups and some people aren't in the groups. Yep. So what about looking at like whether, you know, whether you are in a group the next time around or whether you say, you know, whether you're, in this, you're substantially in the same group yep. or in a group at all or say just, you know, the heck with this crap, I'm going to, you know, stay by myself. <clears throat> yeah. Sort of like a revealed preference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's... Um, for the most part, what you're talking about is really, really interesting and a real morass. 
because there's just a lot of different little dynamics that may be going on. And I mean, I've thought about, I have actually a paper on, it's called something like the formation of groups in undergraduate work, patterns of formation of groups in undergraduate work or something. And we're trying, I have a co-author, and we're trying to figure out the best way, the best metrics to use to measure sort of the, the degree of interaction that you have and the sustainability of groups, you know, how long they go on. But of course, you have people coming in, people coming out. It's very, 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 very complicated. And that when we don't have as economists any real sort of <laughs> framework to bring to it to say, okay, here's what I would expect, or here's the kind of metric that I should be you know, using for such and such. So you basically have to make up a lot of it as you go along. So I feel, in this paper anyway, what I'm, what I'm doing is leaving that entire process to the students. Look, you guys do what it is that you're going to do. I'm not going to examine what it is that causes you to form groups in this particular paper, what it is about those groups that causes the groups to do well or not do well. All I'm saying is, look, I can measure your attitudes about groups at the beginning. I can measure your attitudes about groups at the end. And I can measure how productive you ended up being in those groups. And what I'm going to say is, does the, do those final attitudes actually have any bearing? Do they actually get determined at all by how productive the groups were, regardless of any of these dynamics and processes that are happening? And what I'm hoping is that those initial attitudes are capturing sort of, you know, what you originally would have thought about groups in the absence of your group experience, right? So the thing that's changing is you have this group experience. And whether or, you know, the, the, what's happening in those, exactly, the details of that experience is something I'm just not looking at in this paper. It's certainly something that these data could be used to look at. It's just very, very complicated. And I haven't really figured out the best way to, to do it that is actually going to yield sort of a, an answer that is going to be useful more than just ephemerally, right? That's actually going to kind of say something confident about. It's a smallish sample, and there's just so many different heterogeneous preferences floating around, and the multiple time thing. It's just, it, it's, it's messy. I mean, if anybody has any really, really good ideas about what to do, I'd be happy to hear them. And this is a very, very rich data set. It's very small compared to a lot of other ones, but it's certainly very, very rich. And we have also data on things like their initial learning proclivities, how they learn. Do they learn auditorially or you know, graphically or whatever? And all this stuff, which I haven't used. I haven't used any of those data. So this kind of thing was really, really, um, it's interesting to me. It just it was a bit too complicated for this paper. Okay, and so finally, I mean, this really is sort of the tie, in my mind anyway, to what the Machan Center is interested in, is I, I, again, feel that cooperation, sort of ephemeral cooperation with other people is a really, really important component of a healthy society and just a healthy psychology for any individual person. If you go through life thinking that whenever you have a problem, you have to just yourself to rely on, you could, I mean, it's, <laughs> you just imagine a society filled with those kinds of people. It would be very, very boring and lonely. Right? And you want, you want sort of to be able to have people in the society who trust others enough and feel confident enough about cooperating with them and helping and, and getting into groups to solve problems that you have that sort of community interdependence. And so I think that this is something that you know could in, in fact be considered a very valid goal of group work in tertiary education is to, to teach that sort of positive attitude towards cooperating with others. Okay, so the, the place in the, in the literature that this paper has, as most of my papers have, it doesn't really have a... a, a sort of a clear um, prior literature in one area. It's sort of got a, a, a foot in three different areas. So the first area is the determinants of team success. And this is sort of along the lines of what Bruce was talking about. There's a big literature in psychology, IO psychology, and management about what makes teams productive and what makes teams sort of uh, achieve good outcomes, however you qualify that outcome, whether it's productivity or satisfaction of individual group members, which is sometimes what's, what's talked about. Um, this is, however, not exactly the kind of thing that I'm going to be talking about um, in this paper because, as I say, I'm leaving it pretty much to, to its own devices. 
or that I'm just measuring what happens after that whole social context thing is done and you have this measure of the average productivity of the groups. Um, so I'm just taking that. I'm not really, not really using this. But at the same time, this is where most of the literature is that's relevant to teams and groups, is this whole teamwork literature, what works in teams. Okay. So in particular, there's these issues of, uh, you know, if you have diverse teams, that can be a good thing because you have a diversity of perspectives to bring to any given problem that, that faces the team. On the other hand, you may have difficulty communicating with people because you don't have enough things in, in common with them. And so there's, you know, a, a lot of kind of, you know, discussions about various attributes of teams, team size, not and the diversity, the age, the tenure mix, etc., which could all possibly be good or bad for teams. The second uh, area of literature which is somewhat relevant is the social effects literature, and this is probably, you know, in the area that, that Bruce has, has published as well. And this is where we just say, look, uh, you know, people influence others, and if we do it carefully, maybe we can estimate the extent to which they influence them to do various things that we care about, whether it's risky behaviors like smoking cigarettes or getting pregnant when you're a teenager, or something that's productive like educational outcomes, uh, tertiary education outcomes. And I certainly have some work in this area um, that, you know, kind of is uh, along the same lines as, as uh, sort of the, the interaction effects kind of models that, that, that Bruce has done. So that's another area which is somewhat relevant, again, because we're talking about influence. But of course, again, I'm not modeling that influence here. I'm really saying you are your own person. You are a person who has attitudes. You are a person who experiences productivity in a social context. And then what happens to your attitudes after that? And finally, of course, the economics education is a very broad sort of swath of literature, previous research, which has to do not just with social effects, but also with uh, you know, the creation of with, you know, financial aid kind of issues. I was talking to one of the grad students here about. Um, and you know everything else about how education is produced. You know, is it, you know, if you if you hire certain kinds of uh, faculty members, are they going to do well in, in educating your students? Are they going to, um, if if you have diversity policies, is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing for your educational outcomes? There's a whole bunch of different kinds of questions that you can ask, and sort of mixing versus streaming of ability, all these questions. So obviously, this is in an education context, and so to some extent, I'm I'm relating to that literature. Okay, so this is basically the question that I'm asking in this paper. So when students achieve themselves, when they personally achieve, at an objectively higher level, so we look at the achievement and we say, okay, it's higher than the other students in the, in the classroom during group work, do they feel better about the group work experience as a result of that? That is the only question, really, that I'm focusing on in this paper. Okay? So in some sense, I'm trying to ask whether or not you can teach positive attitudes towards cooperation based on the objective productivity benefits of that cooperation? Is it, is it that people feel better about cooperating because they did better when they cooperated? Okay. Now, as an economist, of course, I thought the answer to this question was obviously, yes. I mean, obviously. I mean, don't you care about productivity? That's the only thing that most economists, not most economists, many economists care about is whether or not something actually achieves a goal, whether, whether the, the task of the group is actually achieved. Right, and so that's the thing that I would primarily care about if I were coming to a group. You know, do we do pretty well ourselves? Okay, great. Then I'm feeling better about that. But if you know, I feel really good, sort of you know, cushy and mushy with the people who are in the group, and I share stories about my past, and they share stories about their past, and we think about nice things together, but we don't actually get the work done, right? We don't actually get the objective of the, of the team completed. Then I'm going to feel bad. Right? I'm going to feel like I did the wrong thing. This is not. This is not what I was supposed to be doing, and I, I was going to have a negative feeling, right? But that doesn't seem to be the case. Because for those of you who have to leave early, the answer to this question is actually no. <laughs> okay, so the contributions that I, that I see the paper making, uh, number one, I'm taking a, somewhat of an econometric approach. It's not very complicated, but somewhat of an econometric approach to a social psychological question, which I really like to do. 
Secondly, I control prior attitudes, which I find to be very important because uh, there is a little bit of prior work asking whether or not productivity uh, affects outcomes uh, in terms of attitudes, affect, affective outcomes, as psychologists would say. But that work doesn't control for the prior attitudes that, this, that the people brought in to the game. And if you don't do that, then, of course, if you think about you know, the natural endogeneity problem, if people who have positive attitudes tend to both have better attitudes at the end and also do better in the groups, then you're going to have the, you know, a bias on your, your estimated effect. So the whole, the whole sort of uh, raison d'etre of this whole paper was to say, um, you know, we have these two different measures of attitudes, and so we can control for some at the beginning. So that was a bit of a contribution. And secondly, I have measures of both own and group performance. So if you happen to have, say, an altruistic idea of, uh, um, of success, so that you really like it when you benefit other people in your group, you like it when the others do well in your group, well, I've got that in here as well. So I'm not just asking about your own performance in the group and whether that affects your attitudes, but also whether or not your, the performance of the other people in your groups actually affects your attitudes towards the groups. Okay? So it could be that you're an altruistic person and, and, and you, know, you care about that as well. And a final thing that is kind of nice about the paper is that it's in a very diverse setting. It's in a university which, uh, it's a business school effectively, in a university which is sort of, I won't say second string, but it's not the best university in the world. Um, it has a very diverse mix of students in terms of background, in terms of demographics, in terms of uh, preparation for academic study, in terms of uh, university attendance previously in the, in the family, etc. So from that perspective, uh, it gives you a kind of nice little glimpse of a more representative society possibly than some of the more Ivy League kind of studies that have been done sometimes in education. And it's not experimental. Some people in the room may think that's not a very good thing. Um, but I actually like non-experimental settings because I like to be able to try to cope with uh, the selection, the sorting, the dynamics that are actually happening in the real world because I feel that that is part of why the outcomes that we observe actually obtain. Okay, just a couple side notes also before I just uh, give you a bit of description of the, of the uh, data set that I'm using. First of all, satisfaction versus productivity. The two outcomes that are often modeled in group research, teamwork research, are number one, individual satisfaction with the team, and number two, productivity of the team in various guises. And, you know, in this particular paper, I'm not really modeling um, productivity of the team. As I've said, I'm modeling satisfaction as a function of productivity. So that's a bit different from, from what's been done before. Secondly, teams versus groups. There are people in the world, researchers in the world, who probably would like to shoot me for saying this, but I don't distinguish between teams and groups in this paper. I sometimes say team and I sometimes say group, but I mean the same thing. I mean the context that I'm studying right now. Some people in particular would say, well, teams are a, a more cohesive version of groups, right, in some sense. Or there are uh, maybe a, a version that has a more distinct objective or something like that. And there certainly are different kinds of group work and different kinds of teamwork, and that's certainly to be expected, and I understand that. At the same time, I, I, you know, I'm just using both, both terms, and I don't really apologize for that because I don't really see that, that uh, in economics anyway there's been much of a distinction between those two things. And thirdly, the workplace versus the classroom. Most prior research and group uh, teamwork kind of studies uh, have used either business teams, business, um, say, uh, teams that are assigned to work with clients and you have, you know, one marketing person and one finance person and, and one logistics person and whatever, that kind of team where you're working together to get some job done and you need multiple perspectives. Or a context in tertiary education where the professors who happen to have access to their students' records and their students' performance 
use that stuff to write a paper. And they say, okay, I've got these students in teams, and effectively that's what I'm doing here. Although I wasn't actually teaching this course, but they, they say, okay, here are these, these groups that are being assessed as groups or that are at least working in groups, and then what happens to the performance of those individual students. Um, and there's a little bit of uh, dialogue, although not very much, about whether or not all the dynamics we would expect in workplace teams are actually the play, the, going to be holding in tertiary education type teams. And in particular, one thing that seems to me to, to uh, stand out, which hasn't been adequately addressed, I don't think, so far, is this notion that in a workplace, if you've got multiple people who each have a specialty and you bring them together to do a job, that's going to increase the efficiency of the job. You're going to be able to have, bring multiple perspectives and, and sort of better hammer all the different aspects of the problem. Whereas in the tertiary education sec setting, if you do the same thing and you farm out to each student the thing that the student is best at, then learning for the individual student is going to be less, right? Because, I mean, the student's doing what's, what they're already good at, <laughs> right? You're a good writer, you write it up. I'm good with numbers, I'll do the numbers. You know, you're good with whatever, collecting the data or, or formatting the graphs, you do that. So you're not actually teaching the student as much as you would if the student had to do all those things him or herself. So from my perspective, if, I mean, the objective of the group may be in, in, in the tertiary education setting from the student's perspective to get a good grade. And so they may be doing that kind of farming out thing because that's what you would do, right? Because in a workplace, that's what you do. You want to you know, combine the resources and, and have comparative advantage, right? But you don't, that's not really the educationalist's goal in a tertiary setting. It's not really the educator's goal, right? So I, I try to tell students at the beginning of class, teamwork doesn't mean that you should farm things out. But of course, they do that, right? And I can't do anything about that. And then if we're going to put them in groups, that's what they're going to do. They're people, right? They are gonna, they're going to be people, yeah. Upwards, and hmm. since you are basically going to show us that everything is a zero, <coughs> like, you know, that makes it even more shocking that yep. we would. The other story was, <coughs> was the one that you sort of told earlier, which was that, you know, if I'm in a group and we just have a fabulous time talking about, you know, all those movies and yep. girlfriends and boyfriends and, you know, whatever. Yep. <coughs> I may be really satisfied by my group, and we get nothing, absolutely nothing yeah, done, yeah. you know, for, in terms of productivity. That's right. So, I mean, it seems like, I don't know, do you, I mean, do you have, I mean, it seems sort of like there's a question about, you know, complementarity versus substitutability between sort of having a good time and being productive. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it's very likely that a lot of attitudes are formed as on a basis that is not economic. And because I do find that I can't predict that much about mid-semester attitudes. I think I only predict about 12% of variance in mid-semester attitudes, even, even controlling for initial attitudes. So I, it seems to me very logical that a lot of that would have to do with psychological stuff and social stuff and the rewards that you get by being in the group that, that are about sharing stories and feeling more at one with the people and blah, 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 right? So that's definitely possible. Whether or not there are complementarities between getting along with people and doing well, again, it's not something I'm really looking at in this paper. I'm just sort of saying, look, I, I don't know whether you're with people who are you know, better or I don't know anything about that. All I know is 
the attitudes you had at the start. And I'm just saying, look, that's I'm just going to control for that and, and, and leave the whole other process undone. So, yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I can, if I'm in a group, I can directly assess the uh, joy I get out of just chatting with these people, okay? Yep. But regarding productivity, um, I don't have a counterfactual against which to judge it, okay? So, would I have done better on my own? Yep. Would I have done worse on my own? I, I have no idea. Would, if I had been in another group, would I have done better? So, I mean, I think that in terms of your outcomes showing that it's, it doesn't, Yes, well, okay, so this is the other argument, is that this is the other thing that could be going on, is that instead of objective productivity, what's being evaluated by the students is some kind of productivity relative to an internal standard. So you think that you should be doing, I think this is what you're talking about, maybe it's not, but you think that, you know, if you were by yourself, you could do, you know, you could get 80% or something, and instead you get, you know, 78%. And so you rank yourself as not having done very well, but if we look at it objectively, we say, ah, oh, well, you know, that's pretty good. That's in the, you know, 90th percentile of the whole class or something. Well, I'm saying I don't, I don't know that you even have, I mean, that's not observable, right? Yes, it is. Exactly. And, and exactly. I don't know how you get at that, I guess. Well, I don't think you can. I mean, you can't in the data that I have, certainly. You'd have to have a survey specifically that asks something about the social norms or the, or the norm that you have in your head. You have something that... Uh, Well, this is the first, right, so this is the first course for most students, unfortunately, my first semester, first, first year. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that you could think about that. I thought about taking as a counterfactual, like taking only the people who work alone, for instance, or taking their performance on the first quiz or, or something like that and using that. I haven't explored that very much. It's something, something I'm, I'm thinking about. I do have a measure of their expectations of success in the course, and that is controlled in all my regressions, which is a, kind of a nice measure. But no, you're absolutely right. So actually, those exact two things are the two things that I have as, a, as an explanation for why I don't find anything. Rule number one, or thing number one, is that there's psychological and social benefits. And thing number two is that what's being done is not a comparison against the absolute, but against the relative standard. Yeah, Nick. interesting in the world I work in, Yeah. And then see if now joining this group leads them to better success. So yep. if you were trying to conflict situation in different groups that go before, the analog to me would be some place where you have national groups that are already performing at a certain level. Yep. They're now compelled to work together. And what happens to the productivity? Well, if productivity goes up compared to where they were previously, yep. would that make them more Positive about the cooperation. Exactly, exactly. The I think that's ideal. Their evaluation of this compared to some previous. Yep. Um, which might be just a floating effort in their own mind, or there might be objective qualities to it. Yep. I think you're a yep. higher standard of living. Yep, no, you're exactly right. And that, that would be an ideal way to, to, to do it, actually, is to get that kind of you know, relative measure. I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah. Yeah, most of them. I think average age is a little higher than that because we have some <coughs> mature entrants, but yeah. But not community college. No, no, it's at university, yeah. First year higher education. Yep. And I think the paper said the recruitment was in class. Yep. Not out of class because of yep. the community thing. That's part of the reason we do it that way, yeah. How long, how long class period? Well, I'm going to get to that in just a second. <laughs> Um, I also will say, with regards to prior knowledge, I do have a nice measure of prior knowledge in economics, which again I control for throughout all the regressions, um, which I'm also going to describe a little bit. Oh, that's interesting. 
Okay, so empirical context. So what I'm doing, I'm taking data from one course over about 16 weeks. It's a course in microeconomics. Um, we have almost 500 students in the course. And uh, what happens is every week in the tutorial, which is what you would call a section, in the tutorial, which is about 25 to 30 students roughly, the students are first requested to form small groups between two and four people. And the average size of a group is something like 2.4, I think, something like that. And then they're handed out some quiz sheets. So it's just a one-page, 10-question, true-false kind of question quiz about some key aspect of economics, whatever's being studied in the course at that time. So there's one on demand, there's one on monopolistic competition, there's one on equilibrium, these kinds of things. They are instructed to discuss the questions in their small groups, and then at the end of about a half an hour, they write down their own answers to the quiz at the bottom of their quiz sheet. They also write down who they worked with, which is what's nice for me, on the back of their sheet. And then they hand the quiz in. And then for the, for the students, every student has the five best quizzes that he or she did counted as 15% as of his or her course grade. So that's the assessment thing that I'm, that I'm looking at. Every week, you're allowed to reform quiz groups if you wish to, the study groups. But you can stay with the same ones if you wish to. And a previous iteration of this course, I actually intervened and told half of the tutorials that they had to form groups the way that they were normally doing it, but the other half had to be assigned into randomized groups. So I have a nice sort of counterfactual of a random versus the, the, the uh, self-selected. But in this case, everybody is self-selecting into groups each week. Yeah? Half-hour group work. How long is the tutorial and what else went on in the tutorial? Well, it's at the beginning of tutorial that this group work occurs. So you get the quiz, and then you do your thing, and then you uh, submit the answers, and then the tutor comes. In fact, the tutor comes sort of at the uh, beginning and then goes off for half an hour, comes back after a half an hour, and then you discuss whatever the, the lecture was that week about you know demand or whatever it is. But you don't have access to the tutor before you do the quiz. And you do the large lectures? No, actually. Another, another uh, lecturer, at our, another colleague of mine does the large lectures. And they, they get the questions before they meet in the quiz? They get the questions when they, so they get to tutorial, they are told to form in the groups, and they get the questions. Exactly, exactly. They don't get them at the end of the lecture, they get them at the beginning of the tutorial. That's right. They don't know what the questions are going to be until they show up. The idea is it's a quiz. Right? You're not supposed to be able to prepare for it, right? I mean, it's supposed to be assessing. So it's like a, it's like a pop quiz type thing. I mean, you know, any, any lecturer might use. Okay, so I've got measures of your own success and others in, in, your, in your group success on the quizzes each week. So the way that I do this is. Um, I take the average, your average quiz score, so percent correct achieved, over the course of every week. So that's your sort of one own performance measure. And then I do it only for the four, first four weeks of the quizzes. So that's weeks three, four, five, and six. Because in week seven, I have my second attitude survey. And the second week of the course is the first attitude survey. Then they have weeks three, four, five, and six to work together. And then I have my second attitude survey. So I'm analyzing, I'm trying to gauge their attitudes towards group work at the beginning and then give them four weeks to experience it and then after that I ask them their attitudes again. Okay? And so the measures of own performance that I have, one is across the whole semester and the other one is just the average for those first four quizzes. And then I also have measures of the group members' average performance across the first four and then across all of them. And it's only the group members who worked with you on those particular quizzes that, who's, uh, whose measures I'm taking. Okay? So the data initial attitudes are collected in week two, and then in week seven, I collect the second one. And the endpoint performance data that I have for every individual is their endpoint examination mark, or grade 
I think you'd call it grade, right? We call it mark in Australia. And so that's in week 15 or something. I just have, you know, how well did you do as an individual on the final examination? Which I, I threw in there just because I couldn't resist, basically, even though this paper's not really about sort of educational outcomes uh, that, that are measurable on tests. It's still something that I thought was kind of interesting. So here are my attitude measures. Yeah. Yep. Well, I don't have any, yeah, okay, so I don't have any assessment measures in weeks one or two. Weeks one or two are pretty, well, week one is orientation. Week two is the survey, and it's talking about the first lecture. So then they don't start the quizzes until week three. I thought what you were going to say is, can I use the multiple measures of assessment to uncover a fixed effect and then use that? I've, I've thought about doing that, because of course that's what I'm doing with Peter, right, with this other uh, data that we have in Maryland. But I'm a little bit worried about doing that because that's going to be collinear. It's going to be related in some ways that I don't know to the way that the groups are forming. If you if you happen to be in better groups, right? And it's only four weeks really that I've got. So I happen to be in better groups, and that makes makes your fixed effect look look high. It looks like you'd be doing better, but in fact you just have to be in better groups. You know, it's just I'm not sure that's actually solving the problem. So I've, I've thought about a couple of different ways of possibly doing it. I, I'm not sure really what the best way is. I mean, maybe. Maybe the best thing I could do is just take out initial knowledge of economics and sort of uh, you know, give them a z-score based on that, and then compare that z-score to their actual performance in the groups. You know, that would be that would be a very simple and rough way to do it, but it's possible that it would work. Yeah. Yeah. This is the last of the previous year, not not this year, not the year that I'm using the data here. So in 2005, I had the random versus the non-random. Yeah. It would be interesting to me to know like, how the, I mean, there's all kinds of things. It would be interesting to me to know like, how the you know, social welfare higher under this yep. system. Yep. Do so you want to know the answer to that question? You can read my other paper. Oh, but yeah. I'll tell you the answer. quick answer is that randomization is better socially, but it disadvantages the, more, the better prepared, and it advantages disproportionately the worse prepared. So you break up the low-performing clicks, and you break up the high-performing clicks. That's basically bottom line, but a really cool paper. You should read it. <laughs> um, sorry, that's totally immodest. Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting paper. Okay, so the first attitude measure I have, this is just Cronbach's alpha, 0.76, and the second one is 0.93. And these are four questions taken from the two attitude surveys each. So I have about 20-some questions. And I'm sorry that your version of the paper doesn't have the instruments. I was trying to import them. I finally got, the, got it imported, so I now have them in there. So if you really want the paper with the full instruments, just ask me. Um, but these four questions in the first and second surveys seem to me to capture pretty well you know, sort of your overall attitudes towards working in groups, which is what I was trying to get at. So you can read them for yourselves. Before the first one, 
they were told exactly how it's going to work, how they're going to form groups? They were told that they were going to be working in groups and tutorials on their, on, their, on their weekly so quizzes. They didn't know whether they could self-select and be assigned? Or? Oh, I think they pretty much knew that they were going to be self-selecting. I mean, there's no question about being assigned into groups. It was sort of, you know, I think they were told you're going to be working in small groups uh, in the tutorials on your quizzes, and, um, but you'll be assessed individually on those, and you know, that's going to be counting 15% of your grade for the, you know, the five best that you do. I'm not sure that it explicitly was said that you're not going to be randomly assigned, but uh, just try to remember. Maybe it was. It may have been. I'm not really sure. If you think that's crucial, I can look that up. Okay. And they, they wouldn't have done this in secondary school or anything like that? I don't know. I mean, they I don't think so. No, we didn't ask them whether they had previous experience with groups. Um, although, you know, most people in the world, <laughs> I think, probably at some point, yeah. you know, work with somebody on something or other. It, I'm not sure whether there'd be other, you know, uh, particular experiences that would be more or less similar to what they're having in tertiary education. It could be that those that have more similar experiences would have better, you know, foundation on which to judge. That is certainly possible. Um, you know, when doing academic work, I prefer to learn on my own. That could have been, uh, you know, secondary school students who have had experience trying to study with other people, you know, other classmates in study hall or something, and they didn't, it didn't work or it did work or whatever, you know. Yeah, it may very well influence their answers. I'm not sure that it would, that that's a problem. But I think it might be it's certainly possible. Okay, so much for those measures. Okay, so obviously I'm reverse scaling a couple of these because they're opposite, right? <laughs> do you do that? Um, okay, so some other group-related measures that I have, and these actually I'm only going over because they, they tend to show up in the results. I have the average size of the study group. So this is the number of people on average that you're working with every week. And again, the average number of that is about 1.3. So you're working with roughly one and a third other people on average. So that means the size of the group is roughly, you know, roughly two and a third or so. And the number of weeks that the student worked alone. And again, these two measures, along with performance measures, are all constructed just for the first four quizzes and then for all of the quizzes. And the reason I do that is for the first four, of course, those are the um, measures that I'm going to be throwing into the equation predicting the attitudes. And then I'm going to throw into the equation predicting examination performance the sort of other stuff for, for the whole semester. So the average size, the number of weeks you've worked alone, and your performance measures for the whole semester. Okay, my initial observables list is really nice for this, for this uh, data set. I've got measures of their expectations of success in the course, which is like my favorite variable ever. Their English language, whether they speak English in the home, whether English is their first language, sorry, that's what it is. Whether they prefer to work alone on academic work, that same question is asked of them in an early online assessment that they have to do. And this is where some of this stuff comes from. Whether they've taken an economics course previously, that also comes from that initial online assessment. What previous mathematics level they've taken, whether they're the first in their family at the university, at a university. And those are kind of nice sort of, uh, you know, initial background variables. And then I have this basket of discipline-specific knowledge, which I build on the basis of uh, a test. It's basically a, it's an assessment tool that we use, again, early in the course, about week two, students are required to do this. And it's based on the test of economic literacy, if any of you know of that test, I don't know. But it basically tests um, their basic understanding of a whole bunch of fundamental principles of economics. So the gains from trade and equilibrium and uh, comparative advantage and efficiency and all these kinds of things that are very core in the discipline. 
And you may or may not be able to do well on that test based on you know, your previous economics experience, but also based on sort of your general, the way you think about things, like opportunity cost, for instance. Right? Opportunity cost, most of us, I think, who became economics professors, probably when we first heard about opportunity cost, we thought to ourselves, well, that's exactly how I always thought. Right? <laughs> but people who don't use that would probably hear it and think, well, that's weird. You know? Just do the thing that feels right, or whatever it is that they, I don't know what metric people use, because to me, it's just a natural thing. Right? So it could be that people do well on this test because they've taken economics previously, and it also could be that they do well on it because they are just they have a natural affinity for it, sort of psychologically, in terms of the way that their their, their brain works. So I construct this basket of discipline-specific knowledge, what I call it, which is the weighted, the concept weighted percent correct achieved on these 19 different questions in that cover all these different basic concepts of economics. So it's a very nice initial knowledge measure. Okay, so sort of controlling for that, then I'm going to look at their grades and everything else and their attitudes. Then I know their sex, I know their entry path to university, whether or not they came straight out of high school, whether they transferred in, whether they were a mature age student, the year of entry into university, the TER score, which is the closest thing to SAT. It's not exact, but it's sort of the closest thing. And then I have the tutorial information, what day of the week, whether it was the morning, whether it was after the lecture or before the lecture in that week. Uh, and what building it was in, although I don't think I use that. But I basically control for tutorial effects throughout all the regressions. Okay. So I get some people dropping out of the sample. And this is one thing you'll notice about some of the, about the tables, is that the sample sizes do differ okay, from, from column to column. And that's because I've got these multiple times that I want to measure people. I've got the very beginning, where I have, I think, 425 students. Whose, whose attitudes I know, whose background characteristics I know, and so therefore who I can use in a, for instance, a model predicting initial attitudes. Okay, and that's the first model that I run, is to predict initial attitudes to see whether these initial attitudes towards group work are actually explainable by other stuff we know about the students. Because if they are, maybe we don't need to use these attitude measures at all. Maybe that, you know, it's not really that relevant or meaningful. But then I have the second survey, and some people don't take the second survey. So I lose some people there. And then we have the final examination performance. And of course, by then, some people have dropped out. So I lose some people there. But I've done some work <coughs> using these exact same data in another paper, uh, which is basically focusing on teacher effects on attrition and performance in, in UniSA, and find that attrition is actually strikingly unrelated to almost anything that you would think would produce uh, productivity in, in higher education. It's not related to their initial knowledge. It's not related to their TER score. It's not related to their gender. It's just not related to anything. People just drop out, and it's weird. And, I, and so I've documented that, and I've gone through all sorts of tests, but I just don't see that it's related to anything. And so this is, shows you just another uh, version of that story, which is the initial attitudes histogram for people who responded to the, my second survey versus not responding to my second survey. So up on the top is that you didn't respond to the second survey. That's the histogram of initial attitudes for the people who didn't respond to the second survey. And then the bottom graph is the histogram of initial attitudes for people who did respond to the, initial, to the uh, second survey on attitudes. So you see the histograms look very, very similar. And there's actually quite a lot of variance in this. So the measure goes from 0 to 20, and because uh, we have four questions, which are on five-scale response patterns. Okay. So this is what the initial ones look like. So this is part of the variance that I have to play with. Another part of the variance I have is here. Yeah? Yeah. So this looks a little bit thicker than this, yeah. and this looks a little bit thicker than this, right? Well, but this also is a little bit higher than this. 
And but I mean, also if you look at like the, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not. It's yeah, it's a little higher. You know that? Yeah, exactly. Yep. I mean, look, I can't. I, well, no, you do see it in the correlations. There's a very slight correlation. It is a very slight correlation. But the, but the, and, the, and the guys who you have both times are actually slightly lower or slightly higher? I think the guys I have both times are slightly higher. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I mean, if you look at the correlations, I think that pretty much... It, it's just that it's not very much. There may be a little bit of that going on, right? I mean, there's obviously... It's slightly different, but it just didn't seem to me... It's not like we're... You know, we're losing all the people who have bad attitudes, or we're losing all the people who have good attitudes. It's just not—it's not a huge pattern, you know. So, which was which was okay, I thought. And then here's the second part of variance that I have to play with, which is their mid-semester group attitudes. And you'll notice that, of course, it's, it's it's crunched up towards the top more, right? So, the contact hypothesis is the most obvious way to explain this, right? There's some people who are—you know—they just happen to work in groups, and then their attitudes go up because they just got exposed to the groups, and wow, they, they just feel better about it, right? But you know, I, I don't know the extent to which you really want to fly with that, but this is what the distribution looks like. So it is a little bit higher up on the, uh, on the range of possibilities. And then the final bit of uh, variance that I have is this variance in your own quiz performance. And this is the average own quiz performance over the first four weeks. So this is the variable that I'm going to be using to capture your own productivity in groups and whether or not it then affects attitudes. Okay. And about roughly 40 to 65 percent of this variable is predictable based on the stuff you know about the person at the start. It depends on if you want to include the tutorial they're assigned to and stuff, right? But about 40 to 60, 65% of this is explainable. So that means that, you know, an additional amount, 35 to 60% or whatever, is not explainable. And so that's that portion that we might potentially think is then impacting attitudes, okay? So it's that portion that is, you know, volatile, okay? It's going to be potentially stochastic. It's just a shock kind of thing that happens to people in the social context, Okay, so, any questions so far? Okay. So, summary stats. So, these are just, this is just to give you some sense of what the data set looks like. So, initial discipline knowledge runs on a zero to one scale. So, people do not by any means know all of economics before they start. They, uh, they might just pass a course, possibly, if the course were uh, the test of economic literacy, assessed like that. English first language, we have about 75, 74% of people who uh, report that English was their first language. So there's a big onshore international component in our, in our uh, university. Um, about half the people have taken economics elsewhere. About half the people are female, no surprise there. Only about 60-some percent of uh, people, of students, report that any family have been to university previously. So we have, again, quite a large chunk of people who this is their first time ever university, their family's first experience. So they're kind of unused to the whole tertiary education system. That stat for something like, you know, Stanford or whatever would probably be in the 90s easily, right? And interestingly, about 50% say that they prefer to work alone on academic work. This is the question in that initial online assessment. Um, I thought that was just really interesting, you know, because I, I just thought it was really interesting. Indicates to me that there's a large amount of heterogeneity there. And those initial group attitudes are right there, so you get this... Uh, slightly lower attitudes for people who are there in the second survey, which is what you were thinking of, Bruce. So 14.33 is the average versus 14.35 for the whole initial starting sample. So it's just not, it's not huge, you know, it's not, not huge. Now you do get some people staying, who are staying on being, you know, the, the better, initially having better attitudes and also having initially higher expectations in the course. Of course, I, I control for both of those things, but that's, that is the way it looks. So across the three different samples, so we have column one is the you know, original sample at the start, this is the second survey, and this is the exam. 
there's not a whole lot of difference between the between the two the three samples. Okay, so that's who we are. We only have a few minutes left, so I want to get to some some results. But just quickly, here are the raw correlations, which almost tell the story. Pretty much, they do tell the story. I would say. So this is just. Um, Good at one is the first attitudes. Good at two is the second attitudes. Own performance is the you know, own performance, average performance measure. Gperf is the group performance, the average group performance. Loner is the number of weeks that you worked alone on these study study group quizzes. The size is the average size of your group, and then exam is the final examination performance. So the first thing that I wanted to know is whether or not the first and second group attitudes were really highly related. So the extent to which attitudes are fixed. If you come to a, a setting where you're supposed to be working with people and you say, damn it, I don't want to work with people, do you con continue to feel that way later on, no matter what happens to you? And they're correlated positively, as you would expect. So that 0.1997 number is the correlation between the first and second attitudes. But it's only 0.2. Right? It's not really, really huge. It's not nearly as big as I thought it would be. So there is definitely some room for these second stage attitudes to change away from their initial state. Okay, so something is happening to those attitudes that makes them change. Okay. Second thing to notice probably is that own performance, which is their number three, the own performance, average performance, is really not statistically related to your initial attitudes. Okay, which is a little interesting because you might think that this is the one reason that you would want to control for initial attitudes is that you know, people who have better attitudes might perform better. But that doesn't seem to be happening interestingly enough in these data. I don't know whether that's you know, necessarily duplicatable with, you know, in other contexts, but that certainly is the case here. Then group performance and own performance, for those of us who really like social effects, that 0.6246 number is the correlation of your own performance with your group's performance. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of social influence going on. Okay? If somebody else in the group thinks that you know the answer to question three is true, then you're probably going to say that it's true on your paper, right? That's the group excluding yourself. This is the group excluding yourself. That's right. So this is really kind of a social influence type measure, right? So there's there's a lot of cohesion in the group on the answers and sort of agreement in the group about the answers. At least that's what I that's what I would interpret that to be. And I should also then go to, to the loner and the size measures, which are really interesting and highly related to lots of things, as you can see here. So the fourth thing I wanted to talk about was loner related to own performance. So here's your own performance in the group is number three. And if you are sort of more likely, if you have higher numbers of weeks that you work alone, you tend to do worse on the quizzes. You tend to do worse if you're working alone. This wasn't, didn't surprise me, actually, the first, because I thought, well, you know, there's 10 questions. You've got half an hour. 10 questions. Each one you have to work out. You know, you have a graph or whatever. It's a little bit difficult to work on your own. They're designed for group assessment where you can't necessarily work on every single question. So it would be more difficult to work, you know, by yourself. And also, the larger the size of the group, the worse you do. So if you have a large size group, you do worse. And if you're working by yourself a lot, you do worse. But on the examination, here's the exam, okay, you do better if you're working alone, and you do better if you had larger groups. Okay. So that is something that I thought, well, you know, what's going on there? You, you, you're obviously, you know, what, what happens if I then control for your performance on the quizzes, and then I just estimate the effect of loner or size on final exam? What will happen then? And we'll see that in the final exam regressions. But what I think is going on here, reading the literature that's come you know, prior to this, is that basically, if you are alone, you are responsible for all the work. And so you may not do as well originally, but you at least have to think about all of the questions yourself. You have it on your, on your own shoulders to sort of uh, think through each of the questions to at least a certain extent. Whereas if you were in groups, or, you know, maybe so with one other person, you may split it up and say, you do the first five and I'll do the other five. And so you don't actually end up learning the half of the material. 
Okay. And that is the, the kind of thing that's come out of the prior literature. And so the loner may not do as well originally on the, you know, the immediate outcome, but then in the exam he does better because he's actually had to be exposed to all the material, sort of more than the people who are working in groups. And in terms of the size of the groups, I don't find a unifying explanation for that and the loner, but in terms of the, the larger size doing worse originally, it could be that they, they can't communicate as well. And this is a, you know, a factor, a, a finding that's been throughout the, the sciences, the social sciences, is that you have a bigger group, it's more difficult to communicate, it's more difficult to be efficient, you've got too many people saying what they want, what, you can't focus on stuff. But again, you've got these different perspectives coming in. So maybe in the end, you tend to do better because you've sort of thought about things from all, a whole sorts of different perspectives. Okay. okay, so let's just go quickly through the results and then I'll wrap up. So determinants of initial attitudes. Um, basically, this is just to convince you that initial attitudes are quite orthogonal to most things that you would be able to measure about students at the beginning, and most things that economists would typically uh, have access to. So you see that the adjusted R squared is actually negative if we don't include this uh, prefer to work alone variable, which happens to be asked in that initial online assessment. And even if I include that, I'm only explaining about 17 or 18 percent of the variance in, in whether you uh, feel good about uh, groups, working in groups. And so I think this is some evidence that, in fact, initial attitudes have some variance which is not captured by the, uh, the other stuff that we can see about students at the very beginning. Okay. Now, mid-semester attitudes, and this is the major focus of the paper, of course, we have own initial attitudes in there, and in a couple of specifications, they are significant, and they, you know, about 0 0.16, 0 0.13, somewhere between there. And these are all standardized. So in other words, a one, point, a one standard deviation increase in own initial attitudes yields about a 0.13 to 0.16 standard deviation increase in mid-semester attitudes. That's how to read that. So those things are important. Initial discipline knowledge is important. As you can see there, third one down. So 0 0.17, 0 0.17, 0 0.15. But your own quiz performance, the group mates quiz performance, the group mates attitudes, and even the group mates initial knowledge are not statistically significant in these equations. Okay? And I've run this a million different ways. That first column I have run a million different ways, excluding things, including things, trying out different stuff. I cannot get that thing to be significant, that own performance, or the group performance. So it's telling me that there's just that this performance variable, whether the teams are performing well, is simply not influencing your prior, your, your final attitudes about working in groups. Your final attitudes, your evaluation of that group work experience, whether or not you felt that your groups worked, that does not map to whether they actually worked in some objective sense. Okay. And you know that I'm only able to explain about. 12% of those mid-semester attitudes. So there's a lot of space, in some sense, in there for other things to be happening to, to determine those mid-semester attitudes that don't have to do with either objective economic success of the groups or with initial attitudes towards groups. Okay. So, I mean, I suppose you can see this whole paper as an argument for a focus on what's happening socially in terms of the dynamics in the groups and the sorting into groups and the influence in the groups. It's very much an argument that that stuff matters independent of just the productivity of the endpoint. Okay? That productivity of the endpoint is not going to get us very far in terms of figuring out why people sort of have the, the predilections that they do in this, in this regard anyway. All the group mates stuff, yep. the, the individual doesn't know it. Do they know the quiz performance of the other people in the group? Well, they don't necessarily know it, no. They may, I'm using that as really a proxy for uh, whether or not the student feels that, they've, you know, that, that the group has been productive apart from them. And it's not, it's not exact. They don't know their exact performance. 
So that's true. But I had to, I wanted to use something that had to do with a group's performance, sure, right? No, no, so but then when they're answering this mid semester attitude question, they don't Yeah. Well I don't ask they, them they would they would sure have some ideas about I don't ask them that. So that's actually objective. Yes, I know that. Right, okay. But they don't I'm yeah. trying to think what the causality there is if uh, the group mates attitudes, performance, knowledge is not something they might not have, have some inkling of it, but they don't necessarily know. That's right, that's right. And they're not informed of quiz performance. They're not informed necessarily unless the, the group members tell them. No, that's right. It's really just, again, it's a proxy for how well the group did apart from the person, which the person may or may not have a sense of. They, they, I mean, you would presume that they might have yeah, some sense, right? If they're oblivious to it, then why would it matter? Yes. yes. They're absolutely oblivious. Yeah. So their own performance is, I mean, from an economist's perspective, their own performance is the thing that they should be caring about, right? right. But, they're, but they don't seem to be caring about that even. That's a measure of whether I was working with smart people. And you might have sort of surprised me there, too, because you might have thought, you know, what if I was working with smart people? You know, like, I have no clue how they did it. All I know is, yeah. you know, they were pretty she told me the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and it turned out to be right. Yeah, you know? right, 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 right. <laughs> well, that's why that was the motivation for putting that average initial, ad initial um, knowledge oh, thing in there. So I have that as a separate thing as well, which I forgot to standardize, which is why the coefficient is so much bigger. But it's still not significant. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it's not statistically significant. I just forgot to standardize it. So that should so all of the everything else, the performances and the attitudes and everything, they are all standardized as B01. And those group mates initial attitudes, I just threw them in at the last minute and I forgot to standardize them. But you can still see from the from the standard error that they're not, it's not significant. The initial discipline knowledge is Your own, yes. Your own initial discipline knowledge is very much so. Very much so. And that's actually another thing about that I draw to in the conclusions is that, you know, to the extent that we can sort of put students into situations where they're well suited and they know something about it, they're probably gonna be happier. <laughs> I mean, no joke, you know. And in Australia, this is a big problem because we have, uh, I was actually talking about this with my cousin last night, we have a, an educational system where uh, you have to choose your program of study before you matriculate, before you even apply, in fact. And then you're only in school for three years. So you sort of have this situation where 17-year-old, 18-year-old boys are asked to tell you what they want to do for the rest of their lives, right? And they have no clue, obviously, right? So this is, this is an issue. Okay. So this is the final thing, and this is really kind of a kind of a footnote, um, which is the final examination performance. And we see that initial discipline knowledge, again, your own, comes through really, really strongly, right? And that's a very, very powerful uh, pr predictor. But also, again, the number of weeks you studied alone, which is that loner variable, and the average size of your group, which is that, the, yes, both of them, very positive. So you do better overall in the exam if you've been working alone and if you've been working with a broader selection of people every week. And I find this in the randomization stuff as well. When, when, when I was able to study that randomized thing, you get exposed to more people of different sorts than you are, and you actually end up doing better overall. Okay. So I'm not actually wasn't very surprised about that. I was a little more surprised at the, at the negative immediate impact, but I wasn't too surprised about that. And that shows up even if I include their, uh, as a control variable, their assignment three score, which is sort of an assignment that's handed in in about week nine or something. So if you even want to say, separate from even that, is there still an impact of these, uh, these groups? And there seems to be. Okay. But their average, their, their own initial attitudes, their average own quiz performance, the, the group members' attitudes, the group members' quiz performance, even the group members' initial knowledge are all zeros, effectively, statistically. 
but that doesn't have anything to do with their final examination performance. So it seems to be about the dynamics that are happening in the groups. The loanership, the, the working with multiple people, it's not the productivity of those groups that's determining the, the productivity of the person on the final exam, right? or determining their attitudes about working in groups. Okay, so I'm not going to rush through these because I'm over time. Um, so initial attitudes are, are orthogonal to a lot of the preparation-related observables we have, so they might actually be meaningful to measure, but there's no relationship between performance and ex-post attitudes. Um, and the social context does show up, but it's in regard to this lone learning and larger groups thing. Um, and there does seem to be some room for attitudes to shift, it's just that they're not shifting in relation to, to productivity. Okay, so if we wanted to teach the benefits of group work to students, I mean, this, this kind of uh, exercise has made me think that I shouldn't be pushing the notion that you're going to be more productive in groups. Right? I should be pushing the notion that, okay, look, uh, you may not be more productive in groups, but we want to try to teach you how to get along in groups, and we want to teach you something about the way that, that group dynamics are, right, and be able to handle that sort of situation when you get out. So something along those lines, instead of you're going to be more productive if you're in groups, because that may not very well be the case. And college doesn't seem to be too late to shift these kinds of attitudes because there is this, this space for them to shift. Okay. It's a small end study, obviously, and you have to be a little bit careful with the causation with regard to these loner and big group results because we don't know about those, those dynamics. It's a big black box, which I'm writing really, really large in this paper, so we need to get in there and study that more to be able to really talk about policy interventions. We don't want to put everybody working alone. Right, necessarily, for instance, or everybody working with big groups, right? That wouldn't necessarily work because you have closed tutorials. You have 25 people. You can't put everybody, you know, working alone and still have group work, right? So there's something else going on in there. So that detailed exploration of that sort of social dynamic is really out of scope for this paper, but I think it's super interesting for future work, okay? And I also think, you know, as we said, as we have talked about before, that there are some emotional and social gains from trade that people are probably looking at when they make their evaluation of whether they thought the groups worked. And they may also be judging their performance relative to their own standards, unobserved standards, which is what John was saying before he left. Um, and I also think it would be great to look at some other cooperative settings. You know, there weren't just this sort of ephemeral cooperation, but looked at, you know, different kinds. Of, and obviously there are some of those studies, but again, this, this relationship between productivity and attitudes hasn't been done in, in a similar way in other places. So, okay, yes? Yep. Um, is it, it's, it's a peculiar situation here in the sense that the best students are basically wasting their time. Indeed. Indeed. Yep. It's their bench, not the business group. Yep. But if you're in a business group and you're trying to produce a report, yep. the report is determined basically by the worst person. And it's up to your advantage to try to either do the worst person's work or not. Yep. If you've got a military group, yep. your life is at stake depending on who the lousiest person in the group is. Yeah, we just link. That's right. No, that's very true. That's very true. So, I mean, in most group work well, contexts... That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So this is one of the reasons why I think the workplace and the tertiary setting are quite different. And, I mean, I know people really want to think of them as the same thing because there's a lot more of students to study, really. I mean, there's everybody who's teaching students could study students, right? I mean, great. But And professors want to get papers out, right? So we write these papers. But, but I don't think that the parallels are really so, so perfectly strong because exactly the incentives issue. So we, I mean, in this, in this context, you basically have nothing to gain. If you're strong enough and you can stick to your guns when you think something is right, you have nothing to lose from being in this group. Because, you know, if somebody else says something that is a new idea, and you think, oh, well, maybe that is right, you can work it through, you can get a better job, a better, better grade. Now, they may lead you to, on the wrong track, that's true. But still, you're doing your individual job, and it's not that you're trying to do, a, you know, a group project that is the best or whatever, right? So from that perspective, you know, it, it is a little bit 
Well, it's definitely a different context, and it certainly would have different objectives in terms of the educational uh, perspective than in the group work environment in the military or whatever. You know, you may not be trying to learn. I mean, if you're, if you're and say, somebody who specializes in, in you know, logistics, and you're trying to collaborate with, you know, somebody in artillery and, you know, whatever, I don't even know what the military stuff is, but whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's not like you want to learn all those things. Right? <laughs> you don't want to learn all those things. That's the whole point, right? The whole point of the whole exercise is that you don't want to have to multiply train. But here, we do want to multiply train. We want to train people in understanding efficiency and equilibrium and you know, pure competition and monoplastic competition and, because that's what economics is all about. And if they come out with a partial understanding of it, then we're not really doing the, serv the students a very good service. Yeah? Mm. What about with their own performance? Well, their own performance in the groups is, is one of the variables I'm controlling in these regressions. Well, but the quiz scores are their own scores, right? Yeah, their own quiz scores, but they're, but they're doing them in the groups, right? So they've discussed the, the quiz in the group for half an hour, and then they write down their own answers. So it's like a measure of your own performance in the group. Right, but right? the difference in these, two, these various contexts we're talking about mm. here, let's say the moral of your story is that the productivity of the group does not shape how people feel about that group experience. So that if we were socially engineering uh, something, yeah. we might say, you know, just focusing on production alone, that is efficiency of group behavior, is not going to make people more uh, happy about their groups. Yep. That was what you said your big story. Yep. yep. On the other hand, it, it might be that your individual performance is related to your success. Yeah. Satisfaction. Satisfaction of that group. It's just the group performance is unrelated. And that could just be context. If you were in a corporate or military context mm -hmm. where group performance is more important than individual performance, then maybe the productivity of the group would be related to the satisfaction. Yeah. Your own individual payoff would be linked so to their. Yeah. I mean, that's possible. But then what I should see here, then, is that people care about their own performance in the groups, and they don't care about their group members, because their only payoff, economically speaking, is from their own scores. Well, don't you find that? But no. I find no relationship between their own performance in the groups and their attitudes. I find a relationship between their preparation, their initial preparation for economics, but I find for none of the original attitude measures um, of, you know, of the group members, or performance measures of the group members, or your own performance in the group, there's just really no relationship between those things and their final attitudes, which is just weird. I mean, I always thought that there would be. As an economist, I thought, you know, if you're doing better, then you should, you know, feel better about that, about that experience. So they're not, they may not be attributing their better performance to their experience in their groups that they see it as irrelevant to They could see it as irrelevant, although there's a really, really high degree of, of relationship between your own answers and your group members' answers. So there's this cohesiveness in the group, right? Because, I mean, it's like the correlation is like 0.6 or something between your own performance on average and your group members' performance on average. So you are performing in lines, in lockstep with your group, right? So it's not like you're not being influenced by them in some sense. I mean, you guys are they're doing something together, right? Groups are meaningful, right? But at the same time, you're not using that productivity as a basis on which to form your attitudes about the group, about whether the group was worked, whether it worked. Right. So your feeling about whether it worked or whether you'd recommend group learning to others or you know, whether you, you know, feel good about working in groups is related to something else. 
and it's being formed in some other way. It's not based on your initial attitudes, because I'm controlling for that, and that's, that's, it's somewhat related, but it's not, it's not the whole story. It's not at all related to your performance or the group performance. It may be very well related to your social or psychological benefits that you get from the group, and talking about your boyfriends and girlfriends, and you know what you did last weekend, and blah, 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 blah. You think, oh, that's really good. And as a college student, you may, you know, that may be what you care about. You may say, well, 15% of my grade is not worth enough. I'm not going to you know, evaluate the productivity of the group. I'm just going to feel good. Oh, no. no. I mean, the variance in size is roughly, the average size is about two and a third people. No, it only goes up to about five, I think. Because they say between two and four. They're told, they're told, please form between two and four, groups between two and four. But some are two women, some are two men. Oh, sure. Because I mean, there's no direction on that, right? There's no direction given. The only, I mean, in this 2005 edition of the course, I did give some direction. I said, like, you know, half of you guys are randomized and half of you guys are self-selected. But this time, they're allowed to form as they like. And that's what I want to do. I want, I want to let the whole, I want to put all the ingredients in, sit back and say, do something, give me productivity at the end, and then let's see if that actually related to an attitude about cooperation. And the fact that it isn't tells me that there's something in that pot of stew that we need to be looking at more closely, that, that, that is actually determining those attitudes. And that if we could figure out what that thing is exactly, then we would have a chance of developing some kind of policy around teaching cooperation, teaching cooperative attitudes. But it's about what's going on, not the productivity. Yeah. But situations where you have a group outcome that is known to all group members and meaningful yeah. to them, um, you, you could get a very different kind of outcome. Absolutely. And that, I don't know which is more prevalent, your situation where you're sort of in the dark about how the group performed in any way yeah. it doesn't matter too much, except yep. maybe you feel allegiance with people. Altruistic or something. Yeah. yeah, but or no, I mean, people in groups have to work together. I would think most of the time they, you sort of know at the end whether the group did well or, or poorly against other groups. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, about it. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. And it would matter to you if you get some payoff from uh, the group. Well, maybe more than emotional, but certainly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about it with respect to my own, um, like, professional life, you know when I have a problem of some sort, who do I turn to? I go to the administrator or I go to a colleague or I go to you know, whoever it is, a person in another state, and I try to work out the problem with that person. Now, I'll, I'll usually try to bring to the table something that they'll like. You know, like if I go to an administrator, I'll say, okay, no, I have an idea about how you might be able to you know, change this system because this was, is not working that well, or here, I've made this easier for you by filling out this extra form, but can you help me with such and such? So there's a bit of a give and take going on, right? But in the end, do I really care whether she gets something out of it? I mean, maybe not. I, I care whether or not my thing gets done, right? In the, in the final analysis, I care. I mean, I like to have a happy place, and I want her to be happy in some vague sense, right? But if I were to evaluate how productive that experience is, I would think about, well, did I get my thing done? Did I solve my problem? You know, that is the thing that I'm going to be fundamentally caring about. Um, not that I'm a horrible person, sorry. Not that I'm a horrible person, but that, that's just that's just what you know you mostly care about. Now, if I look at it from a broad perspective, sure, you want the institution to work well, you want everybody to be happy and getting what they need and everything, which is why I put that you know group performance measure in there, even though people don't know exactly. But I thought, you know, from the perspective of a person going through life, facing obstacles and wanting to collaborate or help wanting to have that person be able to collaborate with others in solving those problems, this is pretty close. Yeah. You're right, though. There's different kinds of contexts, and I mean, yeah. you know, different ones are used, and, and then we all talk about them the same way. And I mean, I think that's, that's probably inappropriate. Other questions? Probably. Right. Sorry. Yep. 
Okay, good. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you.